And if you happen to be visiting with us today, again, we're glad to have you with us. We are in the middle of a ten-part sermon series on David, a man after God's own heart. And today we come to uh, 2 Samuel chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. There are lots of different ways one could deal with this passage, and I felt led to go with totally uh, good news, and I think that comment will make sense to you as we get through the sermon. I'm going to read this particular passage for us today instead of a unison reading. It's full of names and places and lots of things that may even get me tongue-tied, so uh, I'll begin to read it for Second Samuel 9, verse 1. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan... He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He's in the house of Maker, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Then king David sent and brought him from the house of Maker, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I'm your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant, that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson." And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servants, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. I want you to think back to a time in your life when you had an agreement with someone or a commitment to do something for someone or with someone. And I want you to remember whether or not you kept your part of the agreement. Or did your circumstances change so that you weren't able to keep that commitment? In the fall of 1979, when I believed that God was calling me to go to seminary, I quit my job and I knew I didn't have enough money 
to go to seminary, and I've told you part of this story before, but I don't think I've told you the whole story. So to gain some capital, I sold a 66 Corvette convertible that I had at the time for $6,000 and began to look for cheap transportation. And my dad told me, he said, there's a lady that works at the bank with me, and I know that they have a 67 VW Beetle for sale. And you, you, you ought to go look at that car because it's very clean. Well, I went and looked at it, and sure enough, it was, you know, the car of my dreams, though it wasn't the car of my dreams, if you know what I mean. And so we came to an agreement. And I told the man that day, I said, you know, I don't have all this money with me, but I'll be glad to give you a down payment. And he said, no, a handshake's good for me. And I said, okay, that's good for me. And we shook hands, and we agreed that I would get the car a couple of days later. Well, the next day, he came walking into the bank, came up to my dad and said, you know, I want you to tell Barry that I've decided to keep my VW. And I just want you to tell him that I'm, I'm just not going to sell it to him. And Daddy said, I'm not going to tell him that. He said that y'all came to an agreement and he offered to give you a down payment and you said that a handshake was good enough for you. And if you're backing out of the deal, you've got to call him and tell him yourself. Well, thank goodness for me, that man had integrity after my daddy shamed him into it. <laughs> and decided to go ahead and sell me that little car because it served well all through seminary and was even my wife's car, Sarah's car, the first three and a half years of our marriage. And after we finally sold it, after I owned it for six years, it brought more money than I paid for it. So God is good, you know, all the time. But I've always been thankful that he kept his word and stayed to the agreement. And I told that story so that you would be in that frame of mind to see that this is what David is doing in this passage of Scripture. He had made an agreement with Jonathan, the son of Saul, years earlier. And we see him keeping his word about this agreement he made so long before. Back in 1 Samuel 20, we can see the original covenant between Jonathan and David. And in that covenant, Jonathan says, Do not cut off your steadfast love from my family forever. And we're told there that Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies, which would, of course, include his dad. Now remember, even after Saul's death, it was more than seven years before David was king over a unified Israel. He was king just over Judah in Hebron for about seven years or so, and then he became king over the unified tribes of Israel. And then he had battles to win, and he had peoples to displace and cities to conquer, and he stayed very busy in those early years of his kingdom. And then near the end of our previous chapter, 2 Samuel 8, 
We can read a a type of summary statement that the writer gives us there when he says, David reigned over all of Israel and administered justice and equity to all his people. In other words, he's finally and fully established in his kingdom. And after all this time has passed, now David has some time on his hands. You know, and and that time's going to get him into trouble next week. But we see he has some time on his hands. And so he remembers this covenant that he made with Jonathan years before. And that's why we read in our text, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? David remembers this covenant and wants to fulfill it if possible. Now, when David uses this phrase about showing kindness, literally it's to do kindness. Is there anyone I can do kindness for? Uh, This is a a theologically loaded covenantal term that we've talked about before in here in sermons. In Hebrew, the word is hesed. And that word is typically uh, translated in lots of, of different ways, kindness, steadfast love, loving kindness. For those of you that grew up on the old Bible songs book, that rendering of Psalm 31, marvelous kindness. He has shown me marvelous kindness. That's the same term. Now think about how 1 John 4 teaches us that we love, we can love one another because God first loved us. In much the same way, we can have kindness for one another because God first reached out in kindness to us. This Old Testament concept speaks to the life-sustaining grace of God given to His people, given to you and me, which makes it possible for us to have a relationship with Him. And what makes said an act of kindness is typically the fact that one member in the relationship is in a position to give help or aid to the other. That's the way it is with God, and that's the way it is with David in this text. He's the ruler of the land, obviously. He is wealthy and powerful and has the ability and the will to do kindness to the person of his choosing. He is, in fact, remaining true to the covenant he made. This is what makes him, in part, a man after God's own heart. This kind of integrity, this kind of generosity, this kind of obedience to the tenor of God's law and who God is as the giver of that law. And what you and I need to see here is that while this looks like a story about David and this disabled grandson of Saul, it's really a story pointing us toward God, a story portraying the characteristics of God Himself. And not only that, but the gifts that Mephibosheth enjoys point us toward the gifts that we too enjoy as God's children who've been redeemed. God's children who have had steadfast love shown to us by God through the gift of His own Son, Jesus Christ. 
So with that in mind, notice what David does first. He searches. He searches for someone to whom he can show kindness. Is there still anyone of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? This is the same sort of thing that God does for his people, is it not? Think about what we can read in Ezekiel 34 where we see God's displeasure with the way the kings have ruled over their people. And this is where we can read, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep, and I will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock, when, when some of his sheep have been scattered abroad, so will I seek out my sheep and rescue them. I would imagine it's these words of God in Ezekiel 34 that gave Jesus the idea for the parable of the lost sheep that we find early in Luke chapter 15. A parable that illustrates God's concern and love for the lost, for those who lack the ability to find Him. And since they lack that ability, what does God do? He goes out. He searches for them. He goes out to find them. He takes the initiative, in other words. This truth is what John Newton speaks to in his wonderful hymn, Amazing Grace. I once was what? Lost. But now I'm found. If you're found, that means that someone is looking for you. And God in His grace was willing to go after John Newton, this person who who served on slave ships and convert him by the power of His Holy Spirit. And He gives us His testimony right there in that hymn of what God has done for him in his life, how He went after him, how He converted him. David does the same. Mephibosheth. And once David finds out about the life of this grandson of Saul with the help of Ziba, this servant of Saul, notice that David's kindness can be seen in two blessings that he bestows on this son of his dear friend. And the first blessing is that he restores all of Saul's property, his entire estate, to Mephibosheth, which would have made him a wealthy man instantly. You see, Saul's grandson had been living with a man of means. We saw this man from Lodabar mentioned in our text. He'd been living with him, presumably, because he couldn't provide for himself. How is he going to earn a living? He's disabled. And we assume that this man from Lodabar, this man of means, has kept... Mephibosheth, because of his former loyalty and or friendship to Saul. But now David gives him an inheritance. An inheritance which is something that you and I have from God Himself due to His covenantal grace in Jesus Christ. And we know we have this inheritance because that's what Scripture teaches 
1 Peter 1 tells us, By God's great mercy, you've been born anew to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, and not just to a living hope, but to an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Notice all the ways the fallenness of this world cannot affect this inheritance. It's imperishable. That is, it will not decay. It's undefiled. It's not polluted by the evil of this world. And it's unfading. It cannot die or simply go away. This inheritance of salvation in Christ, which ultimately means eternal life, is kept, guarded in heaven for you and me. Another New Testament perspective on this same subject is found in the Apostle Paul, Romans chapter 8, when he writes, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Jesus Christ. In essence, what we see here is that David pays what Mephibosheth is not able to pay. David is able. Just as God Himself is able to pay the debt for your sins and my sins and does so willingly through the gift of His own Son, Jesus, given on the cross for all of our sins. This is part of what Paul's talking about in Galatians 3 when he says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Anytime you redeem something or someone, you pay the price of redemption. This is what God does for us in Jesus Christ and His work on the cross. He's paying the debt we could never pay. And it's what David did for Saul's grandson. He paid the price necessary to provide him with his inheritance. And I think sometimes you and I forget that. I mean, we we think about the cross. We think about that God loves us in Jesus, but we don't think necessarily what he's giving us, an eternal inheritance. We are a fellow heir with Jesus Christ. That's what Scripture teaches But not only that, as part of that inheritance, he he gave him once again the gift of family. And that's the second blessing we see here. Remember, David asked, Is there anyone left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness? And this grandson of Saul is the only one mentioned. He's the only one left from all of Saul's family. And that's because all through the book of 2 Samuel you can read that the family of Saul and the family of David are warring and David's family keeps getting stronger and Saul's family keeps getting weaker, which means more and more of them have been killed off. And that's why David, he's not sure whether there's anyone left or not. That's why he asked the question. And so this man, Mephibosheth, is all alone in the world. He has no family left. And look what David does. He gives him the gift of family. He gives him the gift of fellowship. You shall eat at my table 
always. He's going to be treated just like a son of David, just like a prince. He will eat at the king's table always. Now that may not seem very important to you. But you know how important this kind of table fellowship is if you've ever been really lonely. In my second year of seminary, my summer internship was with this congregation. That was the summer of 1981, and the only people I knew in this church when I came here that summer were Bob and Mary Robinson and their children. And they were very kind. But I thought to myself as I entered into town, this is going to be a long, lonely summer. And then the powers that be had me staying with Miss Janie Rogers right down the street. For those of you newer to the church, the big yellow and white two-story Victorian home a block and a half east from here on White Street was Dr. Rogers' home. And all of a sudden I found out when she told me, you're going to eat lunch with me every day. And what a wonderful thing, because it was not only eating lunch with Ms. Rogers, but also with her brother, Dr. Land, who had been a former pastor in the Southern Presbyterian Church. And so there, every day, I had lunch to eat with these two saints uh, with fine linen napkins and crystal to boot. And then others of you began to invite me over. Linda Miller took a particular instance interest in me. She was a young married person in the life of the church then and was the choir director and organist and I think uh, she had some matchmaking uh, ideas in her mind until she found out I had a girlfriend already. (laughs) But uh, it was wonderful the way that this church came and, and became the church, became my family. You know, that's what our congregational care and congregational service committees are all about in the life of this church, providing care and fellowship, being the church to one another. And and this is what David did for Mephibosheth. And this is what God promises to you and me as well. And this is true because we're now part of his family. Paul makes this clear in Galatians 4 when he says, when the time had fully come, God sent forth his son to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. As he'd already written in Galatians 3, now that faith has come, we're no longer under a custodian, meaning the law, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. God has paid the price for you and me. And not only that, but He's adopted us as His own children. And this means we have all the rights and privileges of a child of God, even being at His table. This is that part of the future of redemption that the sacrament of the Lord's Supper portrays so well. While it looks backward, obviously, by proclaiming the death and sacrifice of Jesus Christ, it also looks forward at the same time the sacrament does, pointing us toward that time of fellowship with God when we're all together in heaven with Him. Isaiah 25 speaks to this where we read, The Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast. 
He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from their eyes. You see, that teaching in Isaiah 25 is all over the New Testament. Death is swallowed up in victory. We see that in Paul's great chapter on the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, the wiping away the tears from our eyes, you know. That's in Revelation 21.4. And then Jesus takes this idea of this heavenly feast and reiterates it in the context of the upper room and the Lord's Supper as He says to His disciples, I shall not drink the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And then He says a few verses later, I assign to you a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table and in my kingdom. Now that specific verse speaks to the authority of the disciples, the twelve, in a future time, but it also mentions this blessing of being able to eat at the table of the king. Revelation 19 picks up this same idea of a heavenly blank banquet where it talks about the marriage supper of the Lamb. So you see what Scripture's doing here. All of these very different ways of describing this blessing lead right back to the rites and privileges we have as children of God, as fellow heirs with Christ, all because of the grace of God at work in our hearts and lives through the power of His Holy Spirit. We must never forget that just like Mephibosheth was incapable of taking care of his own needs, we're not able to take care of our needs. He was not able to redeem himself. He was not able to pay for the inheritance that rightly belonged to him as a direct line descendant of King Saul. Neither are we. Rather, this grandson of Saul was sustained by David's grace, just like you and I are sustained by God's grace. That amazing, marvelous grace that is greater than our sin. We're sustained each second, every minute of every day by the graciousness of God in Jesus Christ. If you don't believe that, read Colossians 1 again. That's the good news of the gospel. Believe it and live in its peace and with its blessings, the same we see in this passage. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together.